Welcome to the Relentless Pursuit Podcast. A great task remains, and we all have a role we can play. But what do we do with the questions we have about missions, about walking with God, about ourselves? Well, here's a space for us to wrestle and discover together. We don't have to have it all figured out to take our next step. Do y'all know what I mean when I say that someone has such kind eyes and a warm smile? Like they're inviting and affirming and just make you want to collapse and dissolve right in front of them? Well, for me, that person is Anne. Y'all won't be able to see her today, so just imagine that the voice on the other end of this episode comes from such a welcoming and powerful person with a killer smile. Anne was raised in New Jersey and came to faith in her 20s. She was a homebody and thought she would stay in Jersey until God took her to the field. She then served as a church planter in Central Asia for 17 years with Pioneers. She is a licensed mental health counselor and married for the first time at 54 years old. She now works in Orlando with Pioneers, counseling those who are already serving on the field. Today, we are going to gather around the idea of biblical suffering. I realize we've been camping out on some lofty topics lately that seem a bit heavier, but y'all, this has been fuel for me lately, and I hope it has been for you too. We are certainly in this wrestle together. Um, I don't want to waste a second more of our time babbling because we have got Anne on our show today, and I am practically already in a puddle because of how honored I am to share this airtime with you. Welcome, Anne. Thank you, Emily. <laughs> uh, you are someone I truly admire for your wisdom, your ability to be authentic and transparent, and your devotion to God. It is obvious mm-hmm. that he is your treasure. So mm-hmm. I can't wait to share this uh, airtime with you. Shall we dive in? I would love that. <laughs> good. Okay, well, let's huddle for a second around our topic and get some good definitions going so we have a place to start. Um, our topic for today is biblical suffering, and I preface that with biblical because I don't want there to be any doubt or confusion with perhaps a more worldly sense of suffering. So, and before we jump into our story, um, into your story and your experiences surrounding that topic, I'm wondering what that concept means to you and why would we talk about it on a podcast that's all about pursuing God's glory and global missions? Hmm. That's um, a great question, Emily. And I want to say I'm so not an expert. And I would say that there are different kinds of suffering. Uh, For example, there's the suffering that I have because I've stayed up way too late watching videos and I have an early morning meeting to get up for. Um, And then there's the suffering that I encounter or others, those close to me encounter when much more important decisions are on the line and I have chosen poorly. And in a sense, that's biblical because in, in a sense, we, I do reap what I sow. Um, but today, as we're talking about biblical suffering, I understand that to mean um, to bear, to endure, uh, to tolerate pain and loss that has not been of my own creating, uh, to bear with what God brings, and it's for his sake and for his, to accomplish his purposes. So it doesn't mean that there's a lack of fear during that time. It doesn't mean there's a lack of emotion. It does mean knowing that God is with you in it, with me in it. 
Um, I believe it's important to talk about biblical suffering in global mission because looking in scripture, looking to scripture, God tells us to expect suffering. He says that it's through trials that we and that others must enter the kingdom of God. And we can take great hope knowing that this kind of suffering isn't random and it is not without purpose. Yeah. Yeah. So before you were exposed to the field, did you expect suffering or were you aware of this or or was it all pretty rosy to you? Oh my, no, I did not expect to suffer. Um, So I had read scripture. I'd I'd read it carefully and I certainly did not expect that tribulations would apply to me. Um, It wasn't that I expected, or at least I didn't think I expected life to be easy. I just know myself. Um, I'm a wimp. I get freaked out over spiders in the house. I want a Band-Aid when I break my nail. I'm high maintenance. I use a blow dryer every day. Um, In grad school, I was voted the most likely to bring high-end cosmetics in my one free bag as I moved (laughs) overseas. So like even this morning for the podcast, no cameras in sight, but I'm wearing my favorite linen outfit and my bright red reading glasses because I'm prissy. Um, So no, I didn't expect suffering because I thought God knows me and he knows what I can handle. And that is something I found to be completely true. Wow. Wow. I, first of all, love your self-awareness and your honesty. (laughs) I think that's so relatable. Um, So for a single girl who was going to pursue a life in Central Asia, uh, working with Muslim peoples, what were you expecting? What were you looking forward to in that? Well, I I think probably some of my expectations were um, just underdeveloped and I hadn't thought a lot about. Um, Some of the ones that I did think through, I was looking forward to getting to learn language. Um, I was looking forward to getting to know culture so that I could get to know people. I do have to say I expected language to be easier than it was. I expected um, cultural understanding to come a whole lot faster than it did. Um, And in a way, I was expecting people to be harder. Um, I mean, I think for people to be more different from me than they actually were, because as I got to know people, I realized that they weren't so very different from me. They loved their families. They worried about finances. They lived one day at a time. They had their favorite sports team. They had their favorite shoe stores um, and they had a different desperate need for a savior. So the biggest difference between them and between me was that I had grown up in a place with lots of Christians where it was easy to hear the gospel, and they grew up in a place where the gospel had not yet been widely preached, and they just needed Jesus too. Wow. I mean, that's certainly something to kind of marvel at. I think, uh, you know, for a girl who's going to a, a nation where, gosh, everything is going to seem just so shocking. It's going to feel so different. And mm-hmm. then to be met with, oh my gosh, what if, you know, we certainly have things that are not uh, the same, but what if we actually do have a lot mm-hmm. in common and there's just yeah. a missing piece there? Right. That's, that's so helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. All right. So I know a big part of your life story has been shaped by um, by suffering, by a traumatic event that happened on the field after only being there for nine months. And mm-hmm. I've heard this story before, and it hits me differently every time. And so I pray that as um, Anne shares this today, that it will give us a glorious perspective on suffering, um, especially mm-hmm. suffering for the sake of the gospel. So Anne, can we hear a bit more about what happened when you were on the field? I would love to tell you. Um, so I'm going to use some notes so I stay on track, or at least pretty okay. much on track. <laughs> okay. So, um, so Emily, as you remember, I had been on the field nine months. Um, and that particular day, I didn't have language class. And so I was getting some errands run. Went to the bazaar, bought some clothes to give to a couple of kids at a local orphanage. I was hot and really tired at like almost four in the afternoon, came to my apartment, dumped my stuff, rushed off to my team meeting. And I arrived back home about 8.20 in the evening. I put the tea kettle on because that's what good Central Asian girls do. They make tea. Um, And I changed into my jammies and my fluffy slippers. Uh, My roommate walked in the door just a few minutes behind me. So it was about 8.45, and we were sitting at the kitchen table drinking tea when we heard the doorbell ring. My roommate went to the door, and that's when it happened. I was still at the kitchen table when I heard my roommate scream, and I heard people run into the apartment. I tried to jump up from the table, but before I got into the hallway, a man in a mask got to me in the kitchen and began punching me in the face put my hands up and was sort of swatting back at him, screaming, hoping to make him stop punching me. He took a gun out of his belt, pointed it in my face, told me to shut up and stop screaming or he would kill me. And then he beat me in the head with a gun. After just a few seconds, I fell on the kitchen floor where he kicked me three times in the head and then the face. So he left me on the kitchen floor and started rummaging through the rest of the house, yelling in a language I did not understand well. I kind of staggered up to my feet. I found my wallet in my handbag in the kitchen, and I was saying to him in English, what do you want? Do you want money? Here, take this money. Take the money. Um, He grabbed my wallet. He shoved me down again. And he went back to rummage through the bedroom. I went into our living room. That's where my roommate was. Um, And while the intruders were in the other room, we stayed in the living room and closed the door to barricade ourselves in. We put our backs up against the living room door and we braced our feet on the couch. And we were screaming um, at the top of our lungs and pounding our heels on the floor in hopes of alerting our downstairs neighbor or someone that someone would hear. I stayed to barricade the door um, as my roommate went to the window to yell for help. Um, she yelled, she waved, she threw things out the window. One of them was this huge plant. Um, And this was before cell phones were popular in Central Asia. So when we weren't getting the attention, we opened the living room door to try to get to the phone, um, only to find that the men had ripped the connection out of the wall. We also noticed that they had locked the deadbolt on the front door and taken the keys. So we were trapped. 
So there we were in the living room with our backs to the door. We were screaming and pounding. As I sat there, I looked down at my long sleeve pajama top and I realized it was totally red. I was confused for for a few minutes. And then I realized that it was completely covered neck to waist in my blood. So we wondered what the men would do next. We wondered, would they rape us? Would they torture us with the knives that they had? Um, When would they finish with us? After more screaming and pounding and the intruders rummaging room to room and loudly, we heard sirens in our courtyard. A moment later, the police were breaking down our front door and apprehending the perpetrators. Then at last, the police were knocking on the living room door very gently and telling us it was okay. It was okay to come out and that we were safe. Oh, Anne, uh, thank you. Thank you for sharing this with us. Um, While it certainly unravels me every time I hear it, uh, I know that it will hit hit each person differently. Um, And this, in my opinion, is such a powerful example of suffering for the sake of the gospel. You relocated your life to live among those who may have never heard the gospel or been exposed to the light and life of Jesus. And within that decision came a brutal Mm. attack in such an unfamiliar territory. Um, Mm. And I'm just so honored that you were willing to share that with us. But Mm. so when I hear this story and I think, well, surely this was an indicator to you that it was time to go and that God's global mission must not be for you. Mm. Um, so what was going through your mind days and weeks after the attack? What what did you decide to do? This is, you know, people say this and it's corny and it's so true that God does work in mysterious ways. Um, so many friends and certainly my family, my church family in the States, my national friends in Central Asia, were all vocalizing, it's time for you to move back home. It's time for you to be done. And so it honestly makes me chuckle when I think of what God used to keep me there. Um, it had been a year earlier that I had quit my stateside job. Um, I'd sold my home. I'd sold most of my stuff. I had been in country nine months. I'd studied language hard, and I was working to learn culture. I'd finally gotten to know my way around the city, like I knew what buses to take and which trolleys to go to. Um, And I was beginning to make a few friends. And it was the thought of giving up all that hard work having to pack and move and find a new job in the States. And that was more overwhelming than the idea of staying in country. Hmm. And that was what made me stay. Um, It sounds crazy, but it it really was at the beginning. It was, that was it. Um, And then as I stayed, I had time to process. I had space headspace to process. So Lord, why me? Why now? And what are you doing? Um, And the more I thought about what is God doing, the more I wanted to stay. The more I thought about what had actually happened and what God might do with it, the more I wanted to stay. Hmm. Yeah, I can certainly respect your thought process there Mm. of just, gosh, I'm exhausted. I can't even begin to think about relocating my life yet again and relearning everything. And so 
it sounds like there's just some grit there. I mean, almost like a, you know what, I'm perfectly uh, miserable for right now. I mean, after this attack, obviously, but there's, but there was something in you that God had, I'm sure, mm-hmm. instilled that was just this decision of, I'm going to stay. I, mm-hmm. I'm going, I will stay. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk a bit about kind of the emotional and spiritual recovery of suffering. Um, and again, this might look different for everyone, um, but obviously you had some physical healing that needed to be done. And mm-hmm. praise God, mm-hmm. um, it sounds like you, um, from what I've heard before, that you you did heal. Your body recovered. Um, yeah. You had no you know, permanent, I guess, um, a, a damage done, I guess. Um, but so in your experience, what type of healing and recovery had to take place for you to still feel near to God? And, and for his invitation to you to serve his Muslim people, to still feel intimate and fresh and mm-hmm. for you to trust God. It sounds yeah. like, oh my gosh, you would just feel like, how could I ever trust you again, God? I, yeah. I was, I don't know. What was that like for you? Well, um, again, this might sound strange, but it was in actually reflecting on the things that had happened and and God's involvement in them. Um, that gave me the trust to stay. So let me explain that. Let me unpack that. Um, so during the attack, uh, what f- first one of the first things was in the kitchen when the intruder kicked me in the face. Um, and honestly, I thought that my head had exploded. Um, I felt my jaw crack, and I I felt my teeth moving over my tongue. Um, was, was the, that's what it felt like to me. Um, and then moments later, it felt different, really just moments later. I still did have this large gash in my face. It was a, a hole that went all the way through my, my lip and my chin and into my gums, but my jaw wasn't broken. Wow. My teeth were all back in their place. And so God had partially healed my wounds. He didn't heal me completely. He didn't stop the bleeding. But what it, it would have been such a different physical recovery in Central Asia with a broken jaw rather than just some stitches. And so that was, that was part of it. Um, another part of it was there was a moment of panic um, during the attack. I was in the living room. Um, my roommate and I were both in the living room, and we were wondering what was going to happen next. Um, the The three men had shown no restraint so far, and I knew for certain that we did not have enough cash in the house to satisfy them. We had like a couple hundred bucks, um, and I thought, I know they're looking for more. And that's when things got very scary in my mind. And there was a moment of terror, and I thought the terror would take over. Um, Exactly in that moment, God reminded me that he was there. Um, There was not an audible voice. It wasn't a vision. But still, it was like Jesus was standing there with me. It's almost like he was just behind my right shoulder. I know it was the Holy Spirit bringing the word of God to my mind. Um, And it felt like Jesus standing physically close to me, whispering in my ear. And he said, Anne, 
Anne, Anne, will I leave you? Will I forsake you? And then there was a long, loud pause as I breathed deeply. And it took me a minute, but then I remembered, no, no, he'll never leave me and he'll not forsake me. So I breathed another couple of times and then it, I felt him whisper, again, not an audible voice, but I know it was the Holy Spirit who was saying, Anne, will I be enough? Now, Emily, I don't understand it, and I certainly don't live every moment of my life in the knowledge of this. I wish I did. But in that very moment, yes, he was enough. This very weird and wonderful peace came over me. I think it's the peace that Philippians 4, 7 talks about, the peace that passes all understanding because it just doesn't make any sense. God did not assure me that I would live to see the next day. He didn't assure me that I would not be raped or tortured or held captive a long time and beaten again and again. But somehow, even if those things did happen, there and then he was with me and he was enough. Oh, boy. I feel a little speechless. Um, That's Well, and that's game changing, honestly, because for anyone listening today who has been wrestling with this idea of, gosh, perhaps I'm just safer if I stay here in the States where I know I'm familiar with this, you know, area. I grew up here. I know everything Mm -hmm. about it. Um, And there's just so much risk involved with going. And, you know, just the suffering seems so great. This is a big deal because while you have you know told us that god never promised you that you mm-hmm. that it wouldn't get worse or that mm-hmm. something uh you know bad or hard would happen to you he there was just this this anthem this banner written over you of mm-hmm. you are mine like yeah. I, I will keep you you are yeah. you are kept with me yeah. and i've been reading this book recently that's reminded me of this idea of a yoke um and mm. how you know a yoke for you know an oxen are, are kind of braced by them it's how they shoulder the weight of whatever they're carrying and so when I think of Jesus' yoke that he promised us, um, you know, every rabbi of that age had a, a, had a yoke of their own kind of, of teaching and, and their own kind of life hacks, if you will. But, but for Jesus, he said that his yoke was easy. Mm. And so I'm trying to think, well, gosh, that doesn't sound super easy for Anne. That sounds very hard. But what he was saying was, my way of living, my way to shoulder the weight of mm. your suffering, to shoulder the weight, I'll teach you how to do it yeah. and I will make it bearable. Because it yeah. sounds like without the Holy Spirit, you know, with you and we're in and yeah. present with you during your time in Central Asia, you would not have been able to stay. Is what it sounds yeah. like in the right. sense of like he was yeah. leading you. He taught you how to carry the weight. Um I don't know. This is just, this is a big deal to me. I think this is just so yeah. like groundbreaking of, yeah. gosh, we need to keep this in mind as we consider our life serving Jesus, mm. making his glory known. Um, what does this mean for us? So yeah. how did so, this become, hey, oh, go ahead, go ahead. Well, I could, Emily, I have it. So if we have time, can I tell you another piece? What do you <laughs> Please think? Please do. Okay. <laughs> All right. So um, 
so there was another piece as I'm as I'm processing, you know, as I was processing later on, there was this piece about our neighbors that was also brought extraordinary healing and hope. Um, so our I didn't know this until weeks after the attack and the police report and we were in court. Um, but our downstairs neighbor had heard pounding. You know, we were like, that's what we, my roommate and I were doing. We were pounding, pounding, pounding on the floor. Um, and he didn't know what it was. And so he like pretty immediately wondered what was going on. Hearing our screams and knowing like we weren't we weren't usually screaming. Um, he called the police and he told them it was an emergency. Please come. Next thing he did was come upstairs. He banged on our apartment door and he yelled. He could hear, he could hear the scuffle and he could hear the, what the robbers were doing. So he yelled to the robbers that he had called the police and he was yelling, let the girls go, let the girls go. Um, so the intruder who had the gun went to the door. He opened it. He threatened my neighbor with the gun, told him to mind his own business and slammed the door shut. Now, one of the, one of the pieces I want you to know is that gun control is very tight where I lived. Almost no one had a gun. Mm. Um, sometimes not even the police had guns. Unbeknownst to me, my neighbor was in the military and he had a big gun and he went and got it. And he came, he pounded on the metal door of our locked apartment, and he said, let the girls go. He said, I am a soldier. I am armed, and I will do whatever it takes to keep them safe. So he held the intruders at bay until the police showed up. An extraordinary part of that, besides my neighbor literally saving my life, that his courage and his willingness to get involved on our behalf stopped the beating, stopped the attack. It was also his relationship with the police that caused them to come. Um, at, when we were at the trial, the intruders testified that they thought we had thousands and thousands in cash in our apartment hidden and that they were willing to beat us until we told them there where it was or they would kill us and strip the apartment to search for the cash. Um, Central Asia has a reputation a whole lot like New York City's reputation for people not wanting to get involved if someone yells for help. And yet my neighbor intervened. He usually worked evenings, but he was home that night and he intervened. This is a long story, Emily, but you have to understand that this is the same man and his wife whose wallpaper I had ruined in three of their rooms downstairs a month earlier when I flooded my kitchen and the water from my kitchen ran down their walls in their kitchen, living room, and dining room. They had just finished remodeling their apartment. I defrosted my chicken, flooded my kitchen, and ruined their home. My timing was impeccable. Now to oh, say, not, yeah, yeah, to say that his wife was angry with me is an understatement. Um, and I really feared that our relationship was irreparable. I asked God, like, how could you let me do something so stupid? I have been working so hard on this relationship. I would like to share the gospel with them. What in the world? Um, so anyway, both husband and wife worked evening shifts. 
And when the police said, why were you home? Like you usually work the evening shift. Why were you home? Um, And he said, well, we'd taken that evening off to put up new wallpaper in our living room. And then this is, this is in the police report. The neighbor said, if we had not been home, if we had not been putting up paper, we would not have been able to help. I believe that God that those girls serve must watch out for him, must watch out for them. So God redeemed my defrosting foolishness to save, literally to save my life and to show my neighbor that he is powerful. I'm in an actual puddle, um, and I did not know that part of the story, and I have a lot of feelings right now, but one of them is just I'm shocked because here we are talking about suffering, and you know i'm I'm hearing your story i'm I'm seeing all these pieces play out and how just brutal it was to carry that weight. And there was this side of it of just mm-hmm. God's utter grace. He mm-hmm. he arranged yeah. so much of this this portion of your story to be magnified. He yeah. was made great in your yeah. suffering, he and was. So that obviously doesn't make it you know any less painful for you. Mm-hmm. But His glory went forward to your neighbor who probably hated mm-hmm. your guts, but he. Mm-hmm. He knew more about God that night as a result of your faith. And yeah. I'm just blown away yeah. at this story. And and the thing was, they didn't end up hating our guts. There was there was something in the power of God in that moment. And they were so confused that they would be home and that this thing would happen and that they could help. They could off they could be of help on our behalf that really was a game changer in our relationship. Like flooding their kitchen, ruining their wallpaper was the game changer in our relationship. Wow. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Doesn't it doesn't make sense, but it I want to hear more about like um, how you, this part of your witness kind of began to take shape in Central Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously your neighbor's a big part of that, but also how did you see God use this part of your story for his glory, um, even when it didn't feel like it was for your good? So within your own ministry, within your other friends in Central Asia, where did you see this begin to play out? Mm-hmm. I would say, Emily, the first thing I noticed was that the few Central Asian friends that I had started making really expected me to leave. Um, they expected that because a Central Asian man had beaten me up, I would move back to the States. Um, they were really shocked. And it it was... Um, shocking is the is the word i come up with like they were they were just confused like they didn't understand it and that was it was intriguing enough to want to hang out and find out more like what in the world would why in the world would you stay um i would say it really encouraged the small believing community um the small community of believers in the city that i lived in it encouraged them that God had been worth me leaving my home country for. Um, it encouraged them that God was worth me staying in their country, and He was worth the disruption that had been caused in my life. Um, they knew. Well, I think it also encouraged them 
that God counted their their people, that God counted this Central Asian people worth, worth the disruption in my life, worth the violence I suffered, worth Jesus going to the cross so that they could be redeemed, that he loved them that much, that he would he would go to the cross and he would send other people to speak of it. Um, yeah, another, another piece, Emily was, um, right now the, the big scar on my face isn't really noticeable, but Mm. for the first few years, it was bright red. It was bumpy. I was literally marked. Um, you could see like the most distinguishing feature on my face was the scar from my lip to my chin. Um, and it was usually women who asked. Sometimes it was strangers. Sometimes it was someone who didn't know the whole story. And they would say, what happened to you? My first response, especially if it was strangers, I would just say, well, I got beat up. Now, if they were interested in hearing more, I would tell them that a local man beat me. And then often with tears in their eyes, they would confess, you know, the same things happened to me, but I've never told anyone. Then came more intimate conversation. So because of a scar on my face, I got to share the gospel with people I never imagined I could even have a conversation with. I got to, to, to say out loud that God was with me in that fear, that God was with me in that moment, that he enabled me to forgive, that he is worthy even when it hurts. Um, I think of the John Piper One of his quotes is, he beckons us to the obedience of suffering, not to demonstrate the strength of our devotion to duty or to reveal the vigor of our moral resolve or to prove the heights of our tolerance for pain. Because as I think about that part of the quote, like that did not apply to me. Hmm. And then this is where it touches down. But rather to manifest in childlike faith. So in fluffy pink slippers and (laughs) band-aids on fingernails, childlike faith, the infinite preciousness of his all-satisfying promises, the all-satisfying greatness and beauty of of him, of his own glory, and him as the fulfillment of all of his promises. Wow. And you have to let me know when your podcast uh, launches because I think I could just listen to you speak all day (laughs) (laughs) about what you've learned. This is, Mm. this is just, uh, this changes, I feel like the conversation around suffering because, you know, those women who would hear your story and, and you were so honest with them of what happened, but it paved the way for the Mm -hmm. the message of the gospel to go forward. And so- You know, I have this picture hanging in my room that says, he wastes nothing. Yes. And Amen. I think this certainly applies of, gosh, your pain was brutal. It was 
traumatizing and yet it was not a waste it was not a waste of your mm-hmm. time it was it was not as if it mm-hmm. was for nothing um and even in the days when you didn't feel like it when you were just mad about your scar or mad mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. you know what had happened and yeah. uh God used it for his glory. He is yeah. so good to us. And I just, mm-hmm. gosh, I, I'm so thankful for your, um, your experience, Anne, and how you've mm-hmm. shared it with us today. Thanks, Emily, for letting me tell my story. Oh, like absolutely. I have, there are, there are more pieces. There are always more. And I think, oh, oh, what about this? So anytime oh, you want, you, you let it. me know. Well, my husband would be proud of me, but I feel like this, uh, your kind of final story there reminded me of one of the final scenes of Lord of the Rings. <laughs> oh, I love it. I don't know what I'm talking about, but uh, it's the scene where, you know, the ring has just been thrown into the thing of fire. Okay. And I'm probably butchering this, but, um, and all hope seems lost and Frodo and, uh, Sam are are sitting there on this rock, and then all of a sudden comes these eagles and Gandalf, mm-hmm. and he saves them. Mm-hmm. And a part of me is like, okay, obviously that's a movie, and it's uh, you know it's a cinematic experience. But honestly, it seems like in your case, you were lying there in such a mm-hmm. oh man, just so much pain and and confusion, and then come these white eagles of no no no, this is this will be used for God's glory. And these women will glean from your faith and they will see not just your devotion to your duty, like Piper's quote said, but Mm -hmm. your devotion to what God will do, the the person of God um, and your relationship with him. And so, yeah, I could just thank you all day, but I'll just land the plane by saying, (laughs) and thank you so much. We are so grateful. Oh, Emily, you're welcome. Thank you for asking (laughs) me to share a precious story to me. Thanks for making time for our discussion today. If you've got questions or feedback, send us a DM on our Instagram at Relentless Pursuit Podcast or contact us through our website at RelentlessPursuitPodcast.com. You are not alone in the relentless pursuit of God's glory. We are here with you and are passionate about helping you take your next step.